Well, thank you for that, Sarah. It's always a pleasure to be a good shepherd. It's one of my favorite seminarians that I've ever had serving as priest in this church. And now it's two of my favorite seminarians that I've ever had serving as a as priests in this church. So that's uh, as, you know, different as they are, uh, sharing this ministry together. That's pretty wonderful for me. I would say everybody was one of my favorite students. I don't comment sometimes, but, but I don't say everybody was my favorite student. So it's uh, wonderful to be here. They, they teach you a lot of things in seminary, and uh, one of them is they try to help you learn how to preach. And uh, they give you a lot of advice on how you should preach. And one of the things that they will tell you is you really shouldn't, if you have a big point that you want to make, you probably shouldn't start your sermon with your big point. Okay, St. Luke was missing that day when they gave out that advice. Did you notice how this parable was introduced this morning? And then he told them a parable that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. All right, well, kind of kind of spent our big point right at the front there, didn't we, Luke? Why even tell the parable? Why did Luke feel a need to introduce his parable by telling us what it meant before we read it? It's an interesting question. There could be a number of ways of thinking about why Luke has introduced the parable this way. But it does tell us one thing, that whatever we thought this story was about, as far as Luke is concerned, and therefore as far as we're concerned, this is somehow a parable on prayer. And of course, it's not hard to see how this would be a parable on prayer because it's a parable that tells the story of a widow who seems to be perseveringly, constantly, day after day, approaching a man of authority who's a, righteous, who's a judge, uh, not a righteous judge, but a judge, and imploring him to give her a favorable outcome. It's not hard to see how this is a parable about prayer. Not hard at all until we start to think about who's who in this parable. If this is a parable about prayer, then this persistent widow, as we've come to know her, must be the person praying. What does that make the judge then? Well, it makes the judge a kind of figure for God. But now we have a problem, don't we? Did you see twice in the parable how this judge was described? This is somebody who neither feared God nor cared at all about people. Oh, that's not a very flattering characterization. And if this is supposed to be a figure for God, one scratches one's head and says, how can this be God. I mean, think about it. What would you want in a judge? You would want somebody who, on the one hand, was accountable. Somebody who knew that he was under authority. Somebody knew, who knew that he was responsible to a higher level of justice. Somebody who feared God. <laughs> and you would want somebody, on the other hand, who was full of compassion, who cared about people. But this judge doesn't fear God, doesn't care about people. How can this be a figure for God? It seems that, as the parable goes, only one thing makes this work. And it's the persistence. It's the perseverance. It's the wrestling 
like Jacob in our earlier reading this morning, it's the wrestling with the judge until he finally relents. Well, and just so we're clear here, there's no conversion in this story. (laughs) Did you see how the parable reads? He says, even though I neither fear God nor care at all about people, I'll give in to her because through her persistent coming, she's about to wear me out. (laughs) This is not a Christmas carol. (laughs) This is not even the Grinch who stole Christmas. Nobody gets converted in this story. She wears him out by sheer force of her will, by her sheer belligerence. So if this is a parable on prayer, the persistent widow comes off pretty well, but God doesn't come off very well at all. Thoughtless, unaccountable, no care for justice. Everything else we're told about God everywhere else does not match with this judge. And that's the point. That's actually the point of the parable. Did you notice how Jesus seals his point? He says, now listen to what the unjust judge just said. And his point is this. If that's what persistence will get you from an unrighteous man who doesn't care about God or about people, just think about it. What can you expect from God to whom you are his chosen, precious, elect people. We are not nobodies making our appeal to an unrighteous and indifferent judge. We are the special elect ones of a righteous God who is ever attentive to our cries. And though it may delay, justice will come. God will answer our cries. So clearly enough, the point of the parable is that the persistent widow is very much like the kind of prayers we should be, while the judge is very much not like the kind of God to whom we pray. It's a parable of contrast. But I want to push back on that point just ever so slightly. Is the judge actually completely different than the God to whom we pray. There's a little detail here in the text. It's very hard to translate. And our Bibles give it a particular reading that could be actually given a more literal rendering. Remember that part there where it says that lest by her continual coming, it says she will wear me out. That's how most of our texts translate that. Now, the literal rendering of that phrase, she will wear me out, actually doesn't have anything directly to do with wearing out. The text literally says that by her continual coming, she will strike me under the eye. She's going to take a big old whack at me. Well, you can see why they didn't translate it that way. That sounds bizarre. What do you mean she'll strike you under the eye? Is this judge afraid that this widow is going to beat him up? Is, is that the point? No, that's not the point. The point is this. When you strike somebody under the eye, what happens? They get a black eye. And in ancient culture, as in some modern cultures, to have a black eye 
is an idiom for being put to shame. Right? For being dishonored. For looking really bad. And that's what the judge is concerned with. It's not that he got worn down. It's that every time everybody in the city sees her coming to him and going away with nothing happening, he keeps looking worse and worse and their sympathies keep going toward her and his reputation is being besmirched. His honor is being compromised. And this unrighteous judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people and who could give a rip for this widow says, I do care about one thing, and that's my reputation. I care about my reputation. I might not care about justice, but I care about my reputation. Now, be careful, but follow this. At this one point, do you see that there's a relationship between this judge who is in every possible way entirely different than our God, except at this one point? God, too, cares for his honor. God also cares for his glory. It is God's job to care about His honor and His glory. It is God's business to make His glory glorious and to make His fame great. So yes, this is a parable of contrast, but at one particular point, this terrible judge and our amazingly good God have something in common. If you don't believe me, remember your Old Testament. Do you ever read the prayers in the Old Testament? Do you know how they go? How do the prayers in the Old Testament typically go? I paraphrase. But they go something like this. God, some statements of praise. And then eventually it gets to this. You know you're not looking very good down here right now. (laughs) You, You know what people are saying about you, right? Rise up. Raise your hands and might and power and act for us, not for our sake, but for the sake of your name, which deserves to be glorified and praised and hallowed above all else. That's the way they pray in the Bible. In fact, that's the way Jesus taught us to pray in the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven. And then we say something that's a little ambiguous in English, but very clear in the original. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. What do all those petitions have in common? They are all asking in different ways for essentially the same thing. When we say hallowed be your name... We are not saying, God, your name is hallowed. We are not saying, God, your name is holy. We assume that that's true, but in fact, we're beseeching God. We're imploring God to show his name to be holy, to make it the case that his name is properly revered and honored as it should be. And in like manner, 
when we pray your kingdom come, we're not just saying someday your kingdom will come, but we're imploring God to press and advance his good and godly and holy reign into the world in which we live. And by the same token, when we say your will be done, that's not fatalism. We're not just saying, well, you're going to do what you're going to do. Help us to get over it. (laughs) No, we're asking God that what happens now in heaven would come to be the case here also on earth. That's why we say, as it is in heaven, so also on earth. So do you see that in the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer, we are asking God to glorify His name, to pay attention to His honor, to bring glory to Himself. And in bringing glory to Himself, He answers the very cries of our own hearts. His will being done on earth, even as it is in heaven. One theologian has described prayer through this parable, and I love this description, as a rebellion against the status quo. A rebellion against the status quo. Now think about that. Here's the idea. When we pray, we look at the world as it is, in all of its brokenness, in all of its unfaithfulness, with all of its injustices, with all of its pain. And we cry out to a righteous God to make His name famous, to show Himself strong, to be glorious among us so that His will would be done, so that His kingdom might come. When we pray, we rebel against the status quo. You can't mumble the Lord's Prayer if you know what you're saying. It's a rebellion against the status quo. Now, let's be clear about that. We are not, like the woman in the parable, rebelling against the judge but we're joining the judge himself in a rebellion that he began in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago against the status quo. Since the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God has been on a counteroffensive against every form of evil, every kind of injustice, against every deviation from his good and holy will for the creation that he loves so much. And in prayer, he asks us to join him in his rebellion against the status quo. This is not a cranky God having a bad day. But it is an eternally good God who's making a new day. And calling us to join him as belligerent prayers, as co-belligerent prayers who implore him for the coming of the kingdom, who long for the shalom of God and cry out for it day and night. So what would it mean to pray like this widow? It means to share the very heart of God. 
It means to share the very heart of God and to be ourselves about what God is all about. And it would be revolutionary to pray this way. We can ask ourselves a kind of diagnostic question, which will turn out to be just a smidge uncomfortable. What if God, and I'm not suggesting that this is the way it goes, but what if God gave us everything in a calendar year that we prayed for? Blank check, we write our ticket, and God does everything that we ask him to do. Well, there's going to be a lot of safe travels. Thanks be to God. Travel mercies are a gift from God. If you pray for them, you should keep praying for them. Absolutely. We're going to see a lot of good health. And healings and good health are signs of the shalom of the kingdom among us. The power of God at work in the world. And if you pray for such things, you should keep praying for such things. Our children are going to do remarkably well on their exams. Whether they pray for it or not, we do. SAT scores are going to shoot to the moon, and kids will all get into the colleges. that You know what's going to happen if we get everything we ask for. And that would be all good. And if you pray for such things, you should keep praying for such things because we call upon a God who cares for our every need. But would any of this happen? Would the parish of Good Shepherd start week after week to see added to your numbers daily those who are being saved, those who are returning to the Good Shepherd? and coming to faith in Christ, and whose lives are being turned around by the power of the gospel at work through the Holy Spirit. Stop and think about this. If all of what all of us prayed for in this last year were granted by God, would that happen? Where we see economic injustice and racial division and people at enmity with one another in a world, even in our own country, in chaos, would we see reconciliation and healing and the coming together of people into the peace of Jesus Christ if God gave us everything we asked for? Or would we just see great SAT scores? It could be. That James is right. We have not because we ask not. And when we ask, we ask for ourselves, but we do not ask on behalf of our glorious God who wishes to make his name great and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. May we join the revolution. May we be a people who not only pray for ourselves, 
but for the world and for the glory of God. So that as the waters of the earth cover the earth, so the glory of God might be seen through his whole good and great creation. For the sake of his name, amen. Let us stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.